and welcome to the TNW podcast, the show in which we discuss the latest developments in the European technology ecosystem and feature interviews with some of the most interesting people in the industry. My name is Andrei Degeler, I am the head of media at TNW and host and producer of this podcast. Joining me today, as usual, is our senior editor, Linia Algren. Hi, Linia, how are you doing? Hey, Andrei, I'm, I'm good, thank you. We suffered a power outage in my neighborhood uh, this morning and in a few other neighborhoods of Amsterdam. And I had a I had a very good plan for this morning. I have this really big project that I need to get done throughout the week. And we also had to record this podcast. And so I had a, a pretty packed schedule. And it was really not in my plans that I would be without internet for the first few hours of the day and no telephone, um, like mobile network reception either. So I couldn't get, could hardly get through on WhatsApp, couldn't get through on Slack, couldn't even call people. So there was this moment of, oh, is this it? Is this the zombie apocalypse? Is this the end of the world as we know it? But then we realized that in Amsterdam East, there was no power outage. So we thought that, okay, maybe the world is not ending. Um, but it was really interesting. And it reminded me, or it, perhaps it brought home the point of a podcast I was listening to yesterday um, with one of my favorite um, psychologists, um, Esther Perel, who talked about the, the prevalence of anxiety in the modern world. Well, she talked about many things, the importance of cultivating the quality of your relationships for your happiness, et cetera. But this specifically uh, related to the power outage. The prevalence of anxiety in today is to a large extent due to the fact that we're living a sort of assisted life. Mm. We are given recommendations on what to listen, on what to watch, on how to get from point A to point B, on who to date, on what to cook. Like it's all laid out and taken care of for us so that we don't have to come up against friction. Right? So that everything runs as smoothly as possibly. And then when we come up against friction, which is an ordinary part and a healthy part of life, then we don't know how to react. We don't know how to handle it. And then that little moment of, um, should we say, discomfort mm -hmm. um, becomes something that we're not used to handling and thus we mistake it for actual anxiety. And then we become very anxious about very small things and minor things that we could perhaps um, have learned how to navigate better. If we would not have been living in this cushioned, in Sweden, we would say a curled society <laughs> because of, you know, the winter sport curling. Mm -hmm. yeah, so it, for those of you who don't know, it's a team sport and one person pushes uh, this um, round little stone down the ice and the other people in the team have to sweep the ice in front of the stone. Oh, okay, now, now I see the and metaphor. Yeah, and that's called curling. And uh, we often say that parents sometimes do this for children, mm -hmm. but we live in the society where everything's being curled <laughs> in front of us in order to remove that friction. Um, but we miss out on a fundamental sort of growth experience of life. And I, something like today that throws off plans for an external situation that I have no control over, but... I think we can either go, oh, all right, well, what can I do to make the best of it? Or we can become incredibly flustered and feel like the entire day is ruined and et cetera. And um, yeah, I would uh, encourage people to dare to be a little uncomfortable so that next time the world might be ending. <laughs> you, you, I mean, you could be actually anxious about the world ending, but just in case it's just a power outage in your neighborhood, 
um, you don't need to freak out and can uh, go about your day. Okay, that's, you a your very, that's a very deep lesson to be taken out of a few hours, <laughs> uh, a few hours blackout, which I didn't even notice because that, that's probably a perk of living further out of the city center. So like there was totally nothing like that in my neighborhood. I wouldn't even know it happened if if not for uh, for your message on WhatsApp in the morning. <laughs> yeah, the one that actually went through. <laughs> it was like my last little was, Hail Mary was, <laughs> to was, the was, outside world. It wasn't the first world. attempt, I suppose. <laughs> yeah. Right. So despite all the adverse conditions, we are here and recording this podcast uh, to this week. And this week we've got actually a pretty large heap of things to discuss, starting from uh, Europeans in space, and then we will move to laser weapons of the future, and then embodied cognition and functional programming languages, and even more than that. Also, you will hear an interview with Ton van het Nordende, the managing director at QDNL Participations, architect at Infinity, and founder of PHX. And uh, he will also to explain what all these abbreviations mean. Also, we will talk about the quantum computing ecosystem in the Netherlands and globally, its challenges, its prospects, and everything in between. So let's start from what we covered this week. So Linnea, this was your responsibility to pick one story and tell us more. What did you go with? Well, it was indeed. Um, and I always find it very tricky to pick a story because I like everything that we cover, obviously. Um, but I have promised I will <laughs> move away from AI, at least a little bit. Um, so I am going to space mm -hmm. this week, or last week, rather, because last week on January 18th at 4.49 p.m. EST, to be precise, was the first time that an all-European crew of astronauts was launched into space. However, the companies involved in the launch were Axiom, which is a privately funded American space infrastructure company with headquarters in Houston, Texas, and SpaceX, Elon Musk's aeronautics company based out of Hawthorne, California. And the Falcon 9, this is sorry, SpaceX's uh, spacecraft, Dragon Freedom, carried four European astronauts on board towards the International Space Station. You had a Swedish aviator, an Italian Air, For Air Force colonel, a Turkish Air Force veteran, and a Spanish-American retired NASA astronaut. So, and a small side note rant from me, none of these are women. But I did watch the launch itself. Uh, which took place at NASA's Kennedy Space Center in Florida. And it's available on YouTube on the NASA official uh, account. And um, they do this pre-launch um, session where they talk about what the astronauts went through in training and what they're going to do when they get up to the ISS. And it's really cool. And beyond all the technical training, like um, how to give CPR in zero gravity or how to work mission control and G-force acclimatization and things like this, they also go through like outdoor camping activities. <laughs> okay. uh, they go on these trips into the wilderness and it's like a team building uh, experience to make sure that they're not just like ride sharing um, the same rocket, but actually they become a really tight-knit group. Um, oh, that's really interesting. I, yeah. I never knew they were going through this. No, I hope it, it was Swedish wilderness. <laughs> no, I think it was uh, somewhere in North America, actually. Um, but they they seem to have very much enjoyed it. You could see it in their faces and the way that they talked about the way that they had bonded as well. Um, and uh, so you can watch the entire process of them being driven to the to the spacecraft and then them sitting in the spacecraft. Um, they look quite calm and relaxed, I have to say, for what they're about to do. 
And they have these little tablets that they work to um, to initiate the launch sequence, mm. etc. Um, yeah, tablets again, technology. It's great when it works. I hope they have backup systems. I'm sure they do. Um, but they then docked at the ISS on Saturday, on January twentieth, um, at five forty-two a.m. Uh, also EST. And their arrival doubled the number of nationalities currently on the space station from four to eight. So there were no representatives of these particular nationalities uh, on the ISS before? No, not at the moment. You can also watch the actual docking and the welcome ceremony from when they arrived to the ISS um, on the Axiom channel on YouTube. And it's really cool. You see them come swimming through the hatch into the space station and the astronauts who are there who are already swimming in zero gravity, just hanging out, you casually chatting before the others arrive. Um, and it's hugs and smiles all around. And it's actually quite moving. And it's really this experience of like human endeavor and um, exploration and achievement. And yeah, I, I highly recommend giving it a watch. Yeah. Um, and there are a few, obviously there's, a lot of interesting parts to this story, but one is not just the cool science that they're going to be doing up at the ISS. Um, for example, they're going to do research on stem cells and microgravity, but the fact that you have an all-European crew, partly sponsored by ESA, um, European Space mm -hmm. Agency, um, that is being launched into orbit on a mission organized by an American startup, Axiom Space, and on board a commercial rocket. Um, essentially, they Ubered a Falcon 9. <laughs> yeah, pretty much. Yeah. And this is the shifting reality of space travel and space exploration, right? So it's much more of a public-private partnership rather than big-budget state space programs. And, for example, Axiom is building its own space station. Um, and this, to me, begs the bigger question, who owns resources in space? Like, okay, the results of this research, et cetera, it's very clear. Mm -hmm. It's the national agencies that have sent their people up there. But I know that I'm getting a little ahead of myself now. But for example, who owns the minerals on the moon? <laughs> right? If you have a commercial enterprise along with state-sponsored space exploration that are going to go and mine an asteroid, say, who, who is entitled to those resources? And when you have several different states competing for mm -hmm. access to space, what will that what will that competition look like? What will happen when we need to come up with regulations for this stuff? And so I as much as I am excited about the prospects of of space exploration for commercial purposes, it also terrifies me a little bit. Well, I think there have been some some sort of at least preliminary treaties on that, and there are definitely a lot of uh, people and organizations thinking about uh, all the um, legal irregularities that would uh, arise uh, in are space. There? Yeah, for sure. We we had uh, we had an entire special uh, uh, interview episode of the podcast a couple of weeks ago where I talked to uh, someone from a European Space Agency and uh, to Thomas from the European Space Policy Institute, which is a European think tank that actually goes into those uh, those type of questions mm -hmm. about what sort of regulation we need to come up with here on Earth to make sure that our space exploration 
exploration and all the resources, but also everything about uh, space debris and uh, space launches uh, gets um, regulated and structured properly. Who is responsible for clearing up space debris, like space junk? That's that, that's a, that, that's a huge question, actually. <laughs> as far as far as I understand, it's a it's a very big question, and theoretically, whoever put them there should be responsible. But the question is how it is being enforced. But I think there are actually more and more uh, there is more and more regulation uh, that uh, tries to enforce. Uh, this uh, this clearing and also there are uh, space startups now as well that uh, uh, create different solutions of how uh, this uh, debris can be removed because it's also not not that easy not 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 always at least. No, I have seen some very theoretically impressive solutions, and then we'll see if it can actually be put into put into practice in yeah. reality. Yeah, no, in, absolutely. In space. absolutely. Another thing about this particular story is, of course, the question of whether or not Europe can catch up in the space race and not depend on these ride shares for the foreseeable future. Um, for instance, Europe is without an, any independent access to satellite launches uh, since the decommissioning of the Ariane 5 rocket. However, we should see the much-delayed Ariane 6 be ready for takeoff this summer, which would be... a a very significant step into at least uh, I wouldn't say catch up in the space race, but get <laughs> off get, get out of the starting blocks again. <laughs> um, no, we also have a really great op-ed on the site actually from Jean-François Morisseur, who is the co-founder and CEO of K Labs, and they develop and make um, photonic products for telecommunications, including free space transmissions. Um, and the op-ed is called Why Europe is Lagging Behind in the Space Tech Race. And it explains a lot of the particular issues with your, with the European space industry. Okay, I haven't actually read this one. I'm going to uh, check it out. But I know that we have covered uh, the space tech uh, ecosystem in general quite extensively in, in the past uh, few months. Also, there is this uh, new spaceport that uh, will be inaugurated uh, this year, right, in Scotland. Yeah, the Saxaboard yeah, uh, spaceport. Yeah, that's, uh, I mean, it looks very impressive. And uh, the, the place itself looks really nice. And uh, I really love the uh, uh, Scottish landscape. So for all those islands, it's so amazing. Absolutely. I completely agree. And there are some really interesting startups that are sort of gathering around that whole ecosystem that's building now as well. You have a, a German launch startup mm -hmm. um, that has already secured um, launch access. Um, and it's going, yeah, I think it will be really, really fun <laughs> no, absolutely. to watch what they do with it. If we have uh, communications people from that project listening to this podcast, we have a few takers to take a press trip to the place and uh, uh, take a look for ourselves. Well, uh, Thomas McCauley, our senior journalist, wrote a very nice feature specifically on Saxavord and on what it takes to build a spaceport in Europe. Um, so I, that's another highly recommended read if you want to learn more about Saxavord in particular. Yeah, we're going to uh, leave all those uh, links uh, in the show notes. So please do go there after you finish listening and uh, read through the stories if this is something that interests you. Now, for the story that we did not cover uh, this week, uh, just because we have been quite busy with all the stories that we did have to cover, because the week was actually quite uh, vibrant, wasn't it? 
Uh, yeah, there was a lot of some, things Some days happening. were quite vibrant. Some days were quite vibrant. It tends to be that way. Um, I feel that some days there's absolutely nothing happening and then all the news come at once yeah, on that's, our days. Yeah, that's, that, that's how it usually is now. So what I wanted to highlight uh, in this uh, segment is also something that has to do with the UK and the skies, but not the space, a bit lower. And uh, uh, since I was in charge of choosing this story, I decided to go with Miltech, that is military. Last week, uh, the UK's Ministry of Defense, of all uh, uh, technology bodies, announced the first high-power firing of a laser weapon against aerial targets. So from the MOD language to the plain English, UK Armed Forces basically had fired a laser at a flying object and hit it. The system in question is called Dragonfire, and it is a weapon system developed for demonstration purposes, as far as I understand. More dragons. Yes, exactly. So the, it was, uh, what was the, the first one? It was Dragon Freedom. Oh yeah, Dragon uh, Freedom, here we go. <laughs> okay, so from Dragon Freedom to Dragon Fire. <laughs> So, the Dragon Fire, uh, it is a demonstrator uh, sort of weapon. The range of it is classified, so we actually have no idea how far it can reach uh, with this uh, uh, laser, uh, laser beam. But we know that it has a precision that is equivalent to hitting a one-pound coin from a kilometer away. Which is quite significant, I would say. And uh, the milestone itself is actually uh, quite significant as well, and it follows years of uh, development, which cost the MOD and its partners uh, over 100 million pounds so far. And in 2017, the MOD also awarded another 30 million pound contract to the Dragonfire Consortium to show what it is capable of. And this is what they just did. It is capable of quite a bit, it turns out. What I also found quite interesting about uh, this whole uh, Dragonfire uh, demonstration is that firing this energy weapon isn't very expensive. I, I would I would have thought that uh, like uh, all the energy that goes into a laser, it must be must be a lot of energy, must be a lot of money. But according to the announcement, the cost of operating the laser is typically under ten pounds per shot. That is mildly terrifying. <laughs> but uh, but yeah, anyway, it's uh, and uh, they say that uh, firing this thing for ten seconds uh, costs about uh, the same as uh, running a normal space heater uh, for uh, for about an hour. Oh. Okay. So, 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 yeah, I would agree that it's uh, terrifyingly cheap. Uh, and, but anyway, we are, I think, nowhere near uh, seeing these uh, uh, things in actual production. Uh, but uh, the announcement does say that UK Armored Forces uh, are considering uh, using uh, this uh, type of uh, uh, laser weapons uh, in the future. I, I hear laser weapons and I just see a Death Star powering up and... <laughs> I think, I think, I think that's, that's what most of us see, I have to say. <laughs> yes. Let's hope it's a bit... Yeah, like you said, it's, it's quite precision-based, so it won't be taking out planets anytime soon. Well, we are living in the future, you know, so... Maybe, maybe there will be even more uh, applications uh, to this. But this particular aspect of the future might be coming to the military base near you very soon, and especially if you live in the UK. So, uh, dragons aside, uh, next segment that we have planned for today is uh, about what we learned uh, this week. And Linnea, what did you what did you learn? Well, now I feel a little bit bad that I don't have another dragon because I feel like it became an unofficial theme. Yeah, wouldn't it be nice to have like an entire dragon-themed episode? Yeah, we should do that for the premiere of the season two of House of the Dragon, maybe. Okay, sounds good. <laughs> Deal. 
Um, so if you have any dragon related tech uh, news or interesting uh, facts out there, please feel free to contact us. Um, so I learned this ties, it's a little bit AI. Um, it ties into the robotics that we talked about last week. So Neo, the mm. household, sure, Android, uh, that is also soft and cuddly and lacks pinch points. Um, they talked about embodied AI mm -hmm. when describing the functions of Neo. And this, obviously, it bridges the gap between an AI that is purely in the digital realm and one that interacts with the space around it. Mm -hmm. I also came across this theory of mind that talks about the four E's of embodied cognition. Um, and this came out of a conversation that I was having this Saturday and we were talking about the nature of mind and consciousness and, and where is the mind? Uh, where is the mind situated? Um, is it all in your head? <laughs> um, what is consciousness, etc.? So uh, there are three researchers. I only remember the name of one of them right now. It's Evan Thompson. Mm, and they wrote a book called Embodied Cognition. And they have the four E's. So the mind is embodied, meaning that the mind does not just exist in the brain because all of the sensory inputs that the mind uses to function and to, to relate to the world comes from the sensory organs throughout the rest of your body. So the mind is embodied. Without a body to take in information, there really is no mind to, to process the information. And the mind is embedded in the world around it, meaning that the mind is constantly responding and interacting with the manifest world around it, right? It doesn't exist in a vacuum. Like if you put anyone into a sensory deprivation tank, the mind changes very quickly, right? And the, the mind is enacted. The mind changes through action. And the mind is extended by means of extracranial structures, like the skeleton, the, the, all, the, all the movement input. Mm -hmm. um, and so the mind does not exist only in the brain. Even if you don't believe in it as consciousness in the metaphysical sense, the mind is embodied and the mind is embedded and enacted and extended. And thus... I found it to be incredibly interesting given the conversation that is going on around AI. Uh, will AI ever become conscious? Will AI ever rival the, mm -hmm. um, the human uh, intellect? And especially then artificial general intelligence, can it ever embody the same qualities as a human mind if it does not also possess um, the means to interact with the world the way that our minds do through these four pathways. Um, and I guess that an android then that has sensory experiences comes actually closer to Much that. Closer. Yeah. That makes sense. So the, so it, it can also be seen then as a pathway that needs to be taken by the AGI uh, developers to actually get to their goal. Potentially, yes. <laughs> Potentially. Yeah, but it's, a, it's an interesting framework to, to, to look through at this. It's not like I think about the nature of mind all that often. But uh, I mean, it, it, it does seem quite interesting. Is, is there something you think more often than? Uh, well, as a, as a meditator for the past um, 15 years, 
Yes. And I also, uh, those of you who know me know this, but I also teach yoga uh, when I do not write about AI <laughs> or read <laughs> other people write about AI. And for me, it is an uh, embodied experiment of the nature of the mind. Um, so yes, I spend quite a lot of time thinking oh. about these things. Enough yeah. to enough to have conversations about it on a Saturday night. <laughs> yeah, exactly. That, 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 that was pretty impressive as well. Okay, so as someone who has never meditated uh, a single minute in my life, I keep bringing very shallow facts uh, to this uh, segment compared to you, Linnea, but just uh, something something a bit uh, <clears throat> to, to, to bring some fun to it. Although this uh, kind of fun is going to be a bit nerdy. I'm, I'm terribly sorry for that. No, please do. I feel like I was quite, uh, <laughs> I went quite deep with some topics today. Um, I, I mean, this. Uh, I think this is a great uh, complementary uh, situation, especially with this segment. So what I learned, an interesting fact uh, over the past week, it is about programming languages and their applications. And namely, I'm talking about the functional uh, programming language that is called Haskell. Have you ever heard of Haskell? I will confess that I have not. That's that, that's okay, actually. So, and uh, also, if you do not care about uh, coding, but still listen to this podcast, please do not turn it off right now, because there will be a more general moral to this story at the end of it, I promise. So, Haskell. It's a really cool language, actually, uh, but you are more likely to see it in applications like financial systems or academic research, also pretty often some sort of internal software development tools. And it's not hugely popular, so it's not, uh, uh, it's, quite normal that you never heard of it, uh, Linnea, but it has uh, a pretty large uh, number of uh, enthusiasts that are very happy about it. So what I learned this week is that a Haskell application apparently runs the entire metro system in New Delhi. Oh, wow. The capital of India. Uh, so to be precise, it appears that the automatic train supervision system, or ATS, is written in this language. But what's even more interesting is the story of how it came to be. According uh, to uh, to what I read, uh, what the developer of the original system uh, uh, wrote in a Telegram group. So he said that uh, he initially intended this uh, Haskell code of his as a mock-up that would serve to test uh, some other interfacing systems. But it quickly turned out that the mock-up worked better than the real thing. And so it had gradually replaced the ATS that was there before. It never said uh, which language it was written, uh, the, the original <laughs> one, but uh, the Haskell one uh, became uh, became the, the, the new one uh, reasonably quickly. That would so, have been my question. Yeah, I know. Uh, it was mine as well, but it's really, uh, the details here are pretty, uh, pretty scarce because uh, the source of it it's just one user group, basically. So, as I said before, there is definitely a lesson here uh, for uh, for the people who didn't uh, uh, care much about the previous part. And the lesson here, of course, is that sometimes innovation comes from a very unexpected place, but also that nothing is more permanent than a temporary solution, or in this case, a mock-up. <laughs> And by the way, if you're listening to our show, please feel free to suggest interesting facts and news for this segment. We would love to hear from you at uh, podcast at uh, thenextweb.com. Now, moving on to today's featured interview with uh, Ton van het Nordende. Uh, it seems like Ton has found himself at the heart of the Dutch quantum computing ecosystem, and we were very curious to hear the insider's view of it. So here it comes. Ton, welcome to the show. Uh, happy to be here. So uh, let's begin with a little bit of an introduction and background. Can you just talk about yourself? 
Yeah, of course. So, so um, you know, I have a background in, in venture, venture capital. Started actually in, a, in a, working in a corporate for five years, getting some experience on, on how not to do things. Learning a lot. Um, so I had to quit my job, built the first company. Uh, essentially made all the beginner's mistakes. Uh, raised capital too early. Didn't know to, was not too aware about dilution. And uh, in the end, went through this incredible journey, uh, which actually led me to, to the space where we are today, where I had my, my headquarters for a while as well here at TQ. And uh, in the end, sold the company and, and joined a really small venture capital firm based out of Rotterdam, uh, with which we started making investments in, in actually regular technology. Mm-hmm. So we made 14, 15 investments in, that, in, that, in those days between 2014 and 16. Uh, became one of the ex- most active seed investors. And, and luckily, we made some really good ones, including, for example, one in Otrim, mm-hmm. uh, which in the end, you know, maybe, you know, in retrospect, on top of the peak in 2021, raised $120 million of bond capital, mm-hmm. which was a really good momentum and return for us as well. And uh, I... Yeah, I spent, I think, you know, a couple of years trying to really figure out, um, you know, what to do, how to best effectively spend my time. And so for me, that was, you know, either to be on the impact side or in fundamental technology, because, you know, it's, it, it's really promising and, and, and uh, amazing to be part of something that will actually revolutionize the way we think about yeah, how we work and live today. And so um, spend a lot of time talking and connecting to the deep tech community in Europe and US, build up a large network, went, you know, personally to visit all different universities and from Finland, Alta University to, uh, you know, Denmark, Niels Bohr, uh, and back to the Netherlands, uh, where in, uh, yeah, in 2019, I reconnected with a friend who was back then trying to secure the largest grant ever given in the history of the Dutch government, which was a 650 million euro grant to advance quantum technology. Mm-hmm. Uh, I, you know, I joined um, a building a, a venture program, and um, that program actually led us to work with approximately 100, 120 research groups in the last four years, uh, really being ingrained into the system uh, in these hard-to-reach communities of PhDs that you know work at you know excellent centers like, for example, TU Delft or at uh, at um, um, or in Amsterdam at QSoft and. And we really started to try to see if we can expedite and accelerate their advancements by bringing these sometimes, you know, uninvestable ideas into something that actually could be a sustainable business. And, and that actually led to the next thing, which, which was actually that we, we launched our investment vehicle uh, called QNL Participations uh, last year. Yeah, last year in July. And we started investing ever since. Right. So there is Quantum Delta, which is the umbrella uh, for for all this. There is Kudian Participations, which is uh, the, the fund. And then there is Infinity QD, which is what? Yeah, that's exactly. So there was the world's first quantum um, support program for mm-hmm. aspiring research groups to spin out. And that's actually what I initially founded for the foundation. Mm-hmm. So it's an independent brand, uh, but funded and, and very much connected to the foundation with a small a group. I mean, a task force of people that have experience in and outside the quantum industry. And so our initial promise and goal was, okay, one of the things that this industry needs is, is, is capital, not only grant financing subsidies, because you can only put so much, you know, hours and, and, and work them away on that side. And, and, um, and so we wanted to see if we can connect the global deep tech investment community to uh, the regional system. And that's what we did. So actually in a period of three years, we, I think, tripled the amount of capital invested from, you know, north of 10 million to 50 million euros invested capital, which is still small. But in the states that we're in, it's quite large. Um, and we connected, I don't know, 900, 950 deep tech investors to the community to start with. Uh, and, and I think approximately 400 experts. It's very impressive. And uh, just to just to be clear here, so these uh, initiatives, are they only focused on the Netherlands or do you have more like European ambition? Yeah, so it's clearly, so this is this whole thing is a collaborative play. You know, there's not going to be one institute, one company or one research group that's going to build, you know, this this full stack uh, computing system or, you know, the, the, the backbone of the future quantum internet. So 
Uh, there is right now, if you look at it on a global scale, there's you know, approximately 10 countries where that house 85% of all the quantum technology companies in the world. So it's, you know, it's very much a small system. And so in that system, it makes sense to collaborate. So one of the things that the support program has done in the past and will remain to do is to, to really work with international groups as well to see if we can support them and create new companies. Like you said, it's not going to be sort of one technology that's going to scale up quantum computing on its own. There are going to be many different small uh, key pieces to the puzzle. Um, What are the technologies that you are seeing as the most essential um, being currently developed to scale up quantum computing technology? Yeah, so so there's you know <clears throat> I would say there's quantum computing and then there's quantum technology and and um, and, I, and again I mentioned maybe just to start out right now there there this there's been tremendous progress made over the last few decades, um, but we're still at the beginning of this journey. And so what we're seeing right now, and this is our strong belief also with the fund and our investment thesis, that in the next few decades and, and principally in the next ten years already, we're going to see you know the emergence of 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 um, yeah of a new paradigm or essentially the transformation of the global IT infrastructure as a whole, out of which computing could be one part, but maybe on the longer time horizon, but for example, quantum networking or the quantum internet could be a part of it or security in that, in that matter. Uh, and so um, since we're a specialist fund, we only look at this technology, we can go really deep. So for others, it might feel like a niche topic for us. It feels like a very broad topic with a very rich ecosystem of opportunities. And, um, but the jury is not out on which one is going to win. And so um, next to having a strategy on all the topics around that. So like I said, within quantum technology, you can define broadly speaking three uh, topics, right? So there's computing uh, with the promise to have, you know, faster or or, or optimized computing power. Uh, There is uh, quantum sensing, Uh, you know, we're talking about ultra sensitive measurements um, um, and there's quantum communication, which could be about security, which is actually quite a hot topic right now, not only in Europe, but also globally. Fortunately or unfortunately, I would have to say. Um, Yeah. and, And so, those are the broader topics. And within these topics, what we're seeing right now for the first time ever since, you know, the first large quantum technology companies have been built and also maybe have been sold or have been, uh, you know, uh, uh, there's more experience and expertise within the research groups. And so there's also a burgeoning ecosystem of startups that essentially become suppliers for, you know, uh, other companies within the system. So next to the fact that this technology itself revolutionized, you know, the global IT infrastructure, Today, there's actually already a market for such companies to 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 be you know capital efficient and to actually have a, a good business model. And this is one of the main issues for startups, I would imagine, or for any company working in quantum, how to survive the the NISC area. Right. And this is before obviously quantum computers become um, well, re- let's say, reach quantum utility or even quantum advantage. And yeah. perhaps you could uh, mention a little bit what you what you see that timeline looking like. For example, for quantum utility, will that come in collaboration with traditional computing systems? Um, quantum advantage, we're ta- there are also quantum supremacy, and of course, Q-Day is somewhere far off uh, on the horizon. But perhaps you could talk a little bit about how you see that uh, potential timeline. Uh, I mean, um, yeah. Even though it's going to take a long time for the for this to mature, uh, the the I would say the time to invest and build is now. And then, so what we're seeing right now is, you know, we see the first semblance of quantum inspired algorithms that have you know a, a sort of a practical use within specific simulations. And um, and that's for example one thing that is actually already here today. So that's not 
that's that's not a thing of the future. And then so, you know, we're this is still the foundation technology build, however, in the next, you know, zero to three to, to three to five years. And then from there we're gonna, yeah, transition into I would say from a legacy infrastructure to, to actually quantum computing. So, you know, quantum advantage for real world problems are definitely within, you know, within that time frame of the next, you know, five to 10 years. Um, uh, we're talking about full simulation, for example, of, of, uh, of you know, of complex and large quantum systems. Um, the interesting part is that right now, since, oh, maybe I should actually go back one more time because you mentioned this, this particular thing, which is, you know, the difference between deep tech and quantum technology is that there's not only a market risk because there is, you know, the market is still nascent. There's also very much a fundamental risk. So we need to first, you know, solve all these you know, elements before we can reach to quantum utility. But in the same time, you know, there is a great hope and there's some companies that we're looking at today that have already utility and, and, and practical applications. And what kind of practical applications are those today? Yeah, well, so example, for example, I mean, I had to, I actually looked up also some numbers on, on, on the global system because again, globally right now, there's, you know, approximately depending on how you calculate, you know, 300, 430 uh, to 450 quantum technology companies located in these pre predominantly massive hubs. And one of the companies that we recently invested in, for example, is called Fermionic and their primary focus is on, on uh, sorry, my phone is ringing, is on uh, quantum algorithms. And there is a growing demand for these algorithms to kind of like simulate the quantum hardware solutions that exist today. And so this company has, you know, an actual use case that uh, that that that's applicable today. And and I also must say, you know, quantum computers are actually already available in the cloud. You you can't really do anything you know useful with them today, but you can actually already experiment with them today. So, you know, that's an example I think of a company that uh, that has clear use case and potential. And if you look at the market for you know such algorithms uh, in in the way for AWS, it's a massive market. You know, people sometimes pay up to two, two and a, you know two hundred fifty thousand dollars for you know simple calculations. So I think that's a clear one where we see, okay, well, you know, that's quite, quite near. Mm -hmm. um, you mentioned specific computing or also on other topics? Um, no, I was referring specifically to, to computing. Um, but just a question, then these startups who are developing, say, software um, on how to simu simulate on quantum computers, what kind of access do they have to quantum computing systems? Um, are they small-scale qubit systems, like, say, five qubits simply for scientific research? Or are they getting time on, say, a larger IBM uh, system and having those kinds of partnerships? Yeah, so, so part of that, I guess, is maybe also proprietary knowledge of these companies, <laughs> right? Uh, but but I think maybe you know a good point to make here right now is that that in, as a whole, this industry uh, will mirror uh, what has happened in the semiconductor industry, which means that if you talk about a large-scale quantum computer or full-stack quantum compute, computer builder or, or company right now, uh, I expect them, you know, to move from verticalization uh, to a more horizontal approach in which, for example, these type of topics will obviously be taken over by by other companies. Uh, for example, this company I mentioned here in Amsterdam doing the, on the software development, are actually using Tensor networks to the to deploy such uh, such algorithms. Great, and uh, since you since you already mentioned the uh, global ecosystem, so what's it actually like on the global level, on the European level, and all the on the Dutch level? If you could just outline. Um, yeah, I mean, so maybe I'll, I'll just start with the Dutch level and then go up. I mean, right. I think you know uh, the there has been uh, there is a the, you know a tremendous uh, center of excellence in the Netherlands uh, in TU Delft primarily, but also actually in other hubs like Amsterdam that I mentioned already in Leiden. Uh, and Twente and, and, and Amsterdam, or in, and, and Eindhoven even, where um, 
they've been, you know, uh, world leaders on, on, on a topical approach, but also in terms of the amount of patents that have been deployed. I think TU Delft ranks third or fourth in terms of uh, the amount of publications that have been made in the technology space. And we've been relatively early in terms of investment in this space. So, you know, the last few decades, large organizations like Intel or Microsoft have already been, you know, been funding these centers. So I think that's, you know, on the, on the Dutch side, we have a, you know, a really, really solid grasp and hold there. Uh, but then if you zoom out a little bit, whereas, uh, and although the Netherlands currently houses approximately 23 quantum technology companies, uh, which is actually uh, uh, third or fourth globally, you know, uh, only surpassed by the UK, the US and Canada. And even, you know, if you look at it per GDP or per capita, it's actually in the top one in that regards. You know, the relative, relative size of these companies is quite small. And so what I think is quite unique in the Netherlands is that I think we decided, and I think we've seen that, um, you know, um, um, uh, different is sometimes better than better. So we're not trying to compete here with Silicon Valley and some of the large organizations that have raised half a billion dollars in funding or more. Uh, we're trying to look at this in a, in a very specific focus. So there's, for example, right now a, an ecosystem of companies that in itself are more nuts and bolts or you know provide elements so for example we invest in a company that does quantum chips on the superconducting cycle quantware you know that that works really nicely in the system together with for example a company like orange quantum who's doing uh, characterization of chips and so i think this like very specialized approach as a starting point and being capital efficient and actually actually shipping products is a very good way to surpass the next you know uh, what is it three to five years to to actually build a a very solid business. Mm -hmm. So, I mean, QDNL participations is looking specifically to bridge the funding gap from from the small grant stage, as far as I understand, in academia, and then to help companies spin out of the academic setting. Um, what are the major challenges when it comes to uh, perhaps convincing a, a scientifically um, scientifically trained researcher to start to think in a more business perspective and specifically with quantum technologies, which has a, say, a different timeline than perhaps more traditional deep tech uh, investing. Well, and, you know, again, let me start by saying that being a researcher is for me not that, I mean, there's not much difference between a researcher and a founder in certain aspects in terms of, again, resilience, the ability to execute and to become top of your field. I know you have to work pretty hard in order to, to, to do the patents and the publications and to work with your research group and expend the amount of time you have and the, and the grants you get in to, to get more PhDs to work on your specific problem. Uh, but, uh, but, but the difference is it's incredibly hard to spin out because you're working in an academic setting uh, with a different pace. And and from an academic perspective, you know, a university is not built necessarily to create economic value in the form of companies. And so what I see most of these researchers struggling with, uh, and in fact, typically we are one of the first ones actually talking to these research groups, you know, the, actually the Center of Excellence where they're struggling with uh, uh, initially even trying to figure out who to talk to to spin out, you know, a patent or a technology. And so, um, I think that's the principal problem. So I think sometimes it actually could have been done quite faster. So, you know, periods of, of spin-out processes sometimes take two years to three years, where I think could have been done half a year. Mm -hmm. um, I think that's actually where the, the original problem starts. And then the second thing is the transition from a grant-grown grant organization to a to an actual company means that you need to have support in. And so unfortunately, the way that we're financing these companies in the early stage, and on the, on the one side, it's great to have these subsidies and grants. We need them, and we're going to need much more capital going into the system. On the other side, we need to see if we can also support these companies with more you know, business aspects and elements. 
uh, and other types of funding so they can scale the organization out of the lab and from lab into you know a venture with also support on the financing side and on the business development side uh, because in the end for all these companies um, uh, it is about securing value and value is principally secured by securing assignments and so you know in the end you want to see if you can build up a form of an order book which means you need to kind of really uh, and so these things all make total sense in traditional tech and uh, but for for scientists it's it's hard in the beginning and there's a lot of things that are new and um, and I would say the the support is is not always on point there Right, but if we look if we look at this on the from the other side, though, so I understand the issues for researchers themselves. But how about the universities? Like, how prepared are they, for example, in the Netherlands, but also in Europe and globally, to let these organizations spin out uh, from the lab into a uh, like normal separate existence as a company? Are there issues on that end at this point? In what way do you mean? Because I mean, I mean, okay. I will put it in very plain English. Like sometimes it's really hard for a research group, for example, to spin out into a company because the university would make it difficult in terms of IP, for example. Yeah, I mean, there's a lot of discussions going on now for years, and I think uh, specifically here locally in the Netherlands, but we actually haven't talked about Europe and broader. But uh, you know, there's 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 efforts to work towards standardization of term sheets. <clears throat> I think the main issue here again is that you know, from a university perspective, you know, you want to support everyone, but it doesn't work in the form of company creation because you cannot give everyone the same amount of time, and it's a very personalized approach. And so, I think we should try to see if we can put a different incentives uh, mm-hmm. on these university staffs, and also maybe staff them with different people. You know, there's there's a university in this country that has you know one single lawyer that has to do all the IP contracting and and all the licensing for for spin-out processes. That is that that feels to me like something we could potentially tackle, right? And that's so that's a bit of a bottleneck. Yeah. The other thing is these contracts are incredibly complex. Uh, we would like to see them made, of course, much more plainly and. I, for one, actually don't mind. I think it's actually quite healthy and it's perfect. And even, in fact, I would argue that we would get a lot of economic return if these universities properly, you know, finance and spin out these companies in the beginning is that, you know, if a university ends up with, you know, 5% of a company, but in return for a sizable peasant portfolio, I think that's totally fine. I think the main thing here is the challenge of the timing. Mm-hmm. And the complexity of the contracts, and you know royalties and license yeah. models, etc., built on top of that, uh, but pre- principally the time. You know, it right. cannot take a company two years to spin out, and this is not only a local problem; it's a problem that I hear all over the world. And although in certain universities and systems there are different systems, for example, at Chalmers in Sweden. Mm-hmm. You can actually spin out and you own the IP as a, as a, as a researcher professor. I think, you know, that's already a really nice start. Uh, but I think we can, you know, these are kind of like the main challenges there. And um, and uh, although, yeah, although we we try to work with that and we actually help the companies to, to build because we, we come in quite early. We do pre-seed and seed and sometimes we actually are the first check-in even almost before incorporation because we know the technology background so well. There is a limited amount of things we can do in order to sort out these massive issues. And um, uh, so if you have an idea of you know, a perfect solution, <laughs> I, I would happen to hear it as well. Right. And since we already sort of started circling back to the question of uh, European and global ecosystem, can you also outline those? So how do you how do you see them? Yeah. Yeah. So yeah. So zooming out, I think one interesting thing is is that um, if you look at the amount of big corporations investing in quantum technology, like yeah, I, like IBM or Microsoft and others, uh, and next to that, the amount of public funding going into the ecosystem, there is actually 14 national programs or 15 and counting 
And so I think in 2023, there was approximately close to $40 billion invested from public funding into this ecosystem. Um, but it's not invested equally, or at least not totally equally. Yeah? So a large amount of this capital goes to certain regions that are more developed in the technology space. But then again, um, if you compare Europe with US, it's still almost you know nothing. It's close to a blip. You know, um, If you see the deals emerging from that system or the, the size of the valuation of these companies, yeah, it's quite a different Rhythm ball game. Although, however, although I might say that you know the question is, if you're building you know a full stack solution right now, and uh, how do you want to be capitalized? And and does it make sense to have 500 researchers, or is the limit actually on the research topic 100 people you can hire? So we'll have to see how that plays out. Out, but I think the global uh, that's one, and then of course next to that there's this you know the, the connectivity of the system or the competitiveness internally, you know within nations uh, mm -hmm. to to collaborate or not collaborate, and also more on a geopolitical level between Europe and US, which is for example a big thing if you think about you know, quantum or internet security or security you know on on a critical infrastructure level, uh, which is is a topic where quantum is yeah one of the key things for the next you know coming ten years. So. Um, there is, yeah, I would say, yeah, we're going to see how it plays out in the next, you know, uh, decade, but, um, yeah. And this is potentially with the new commission coming in, if Thierry Breton should end up being president of the commission, for example, he has said that quantum will be one of his key priorities uh, on the technological side moving forward. And we've seen also the, the U.S. impose export uh, controls when it comes to technology that can support quantum um, for China. So it's uh, it's a growing geopolitical and security topic as well, for certain. Yeah, yeah. And on the one side, it's going to actually advance or accelerate some of the topics. And, and again, maybe just to, to zoom in back again, there's this one really exciting company that we we work with and invested in. They're called Cuber. They're based in, uh, in Delft and they they're, they're building essentially the, what could be the unhackable quantum internet, but it starts with connecting end users together mm -hmm. via central hub technology. And it's a multi-point to multi-point, uh, but long story short, they have a partnership right now with the Port of Rotterdam. And the Port of Rotterdam is a quite an important com com uh, company for the Dutch uh, economy, right? I think they have half a million people employed or more. Uh, I think they approximate like 8% of GDP and they're now experimenting with the first yeah, security-proof uh, quantum internet there. And uh, it kind of like shows the, the the necessity. You don't want these shipping routes to be discovered or, you know, when they have a container of iPhones coming in the harbor. You know, this is data that you want to secure. That's just on the simplest level. And so uh, the tensions, unfortunately, unfortunately, also expedites some of these developments and the attention on the topic. And I think in principle... Yeah, um, it needs this attention as well uh, because we need to, you know, I would say, really solidly look at the implications of what uh, what will come here. There. Right, and you as a as a fund, you focus on the early stage, on the seed stage, basically. Yeah, when we were a small team, we're a small fund. Uh, we have 15 million euros. Uh, we're we're kind of like almost halfway there with deployment. Mm -hmm. um, within the first year, within the, it's been a year and a bit, right? Yeah, since, we've been, since the launch. We've had quite a high pace. Uh, <laughs> it, it's also because we had, I would say, a head start. Right? We've been heads deep in this community now for for several years, uh, so we really know which companies to look at. And and uh, and half a year actually, half a year ago, is it nine months ago already? I, uh, I onboarded another partner, or a venture mm -hmm. partner in the fund, which is uh, Chat. Rigetti, yeah. uh, who, and of course, some of you might know, but he founded Rigetti Computing. Uh, so he uh, came from uh, from Michel Devret's lab back and then went to IBM, founded a company, what is it now, 13 years ago, uh, and yeah, reverse listed and went live on the NASDAQ. Uh, so he's been through this space through and through. And so I think you know, for us, 
yeah, we're going to continue the speed of pace in investing because we know which companies we would like to back and start see growing. Um, yeah. Yeah, but then basically the question is like, why is... Uh than quantum uh, tech niche so different from the other segments. Because in general, if you look at the European ecosystem, Dutch ecosystem as well, the main issue related to capital is more uh, in series A and above. And in this case, suddenly there is an issue with the seed stage money. So why, uh, why is it like that? I think there might be an issue on the types of capital coming into okay. to the companies and, and also the conditions under which the, this capital is invested. And so, for example, we are strong advocates uh, uh, to, to invest without any fixed milestones or tranches, for example, that kind of like sometimes misalign investor and investee and, mm -hmm. and also looking at on the, some of the timelines and some of the flexibility you need to give these teams to develop a roadmap. And of course, we look at, you know, aligning a financial plan and a technology plan, but So I think there's maybe a mismatch there. Mm -hmm. I think there also might be a mismatch in terms of the expectancy of some of the companies on what to raise and how much to raise. Uh, looking at the US, for example, or or the adverse effect where um, uh, a lot of small check investors get into a company and 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 it also becomes a little bit of a hard game, right? Mm -hmm. So I think it's 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 also that kind of mismatch that we're talking about. And uh, but luckily we're seeing. Uh, I mean, we're also seeing on a global scale. If you look at, I think was it Anderson Horowitz or Sequoia just announced that they're going to replace some of their consumer team to, to, to be experts on AI. It's, mm -hmm. We're seeing the same with, with some of our you know, colleagues in the space right now where, where some of the, the deep tech firms are you know, actively looking at PhDs in physics as well to support the team. And so I think that is all good and it's going to help and support the system. And yeah, you definitely need to know what you're doing in order to support these companies. Yeah, and uh, since you mentioned the uh, uh, time frame, so what uh, what about your fund? So what what is the lifetime of the fund? Because like I mean, you, you still need to make money. So when do you expect to make money off these uh, investments that you're making now? Yeah, so we have a long lifetime, so it's ten, twelve years, and 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 I think in terms of 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 return, I think there's there's again, I think I mentioned it, there's these longer time horizon ideas uh, towards quantum utility or quantum advantage or full, or full stack systems that actually have that value uh, that can work and operate on, 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 on a skill that works. And then there's more near term, I would say, there's companies that are operating on a very nice model. And there's, for example, one company based in, in Finland. I think that's one of the hidden gems in European tech, honestly, to be honest. They're, they're located um, uh, uh, next to Helsinki or between Helsinki and Espo, uh, built back, what is it, 10, 12 years ago uh, by, uh, by two founders. It's called Blue Force. Force. Right. Yeah, you know, the refrigerator right. system. Yeah, they, yeah, yeah. they should. They, I'm, they, uh, I'm talking to their CEO we tomorrow. Just, oh. just discussed them the other day. <laughs> oh, Rob, okay. Yeah, Rob is, yeah. I was there actually. In, in well, you've seen the start the of December. Yes, absolutely. Okay, well, it's amazing, and it's, right? Uh, it's one of these companies that you have no idea exists, and yet no quantum computer today would run without them. Exactly. They, they've shipped, what, close to 2,500 of these fridges. And And these things, these cost, you know, upwards of, you know, 1.5, 2.5 million or more. And I think, you know, it's also published on the website, so I can say this information. I think it's 160 million in revenue uh, last year. So these are actual companies being built, capital efficient. In fact, this particular company hasn't raised, ha hadn't raised any outside capital until uh, a party came in, what is it, maybe two years ago. And so uh, there's more of these type of organizations that, uh, that I think are here. Um, uh, and this is more near term. And these, these companies have the opportunity to grow into sustainable business. Uh, and I think industry is looking, but in order for that to happen, yeah, we're going to need to have to yeah, capitalize these organizations in, in, a, in, a, in a proper way. Absolutely. And do you also work uh, or at least talk to uh, your peers uh, within the European ecosystem and also the governmental and EU level organization? How is that collaboration looking? 
Yeah, of course. I mean, the, the, on the European level, the ESC is is indirectly, but then also you know indirectly a great partner uh, in terms of you know the grant in combination the blended finance options mm-hmm. that they provide. Uh, so far, you know, our companies have a hundred percent score on on securing that. So that's you know right. in, incredible. Looking at the, the the low probability that you can get these grants, in fact. So I think you know those are good partners, and I think you know for us. Also moving forward, it just makes sense to, to think about, you know, what type of organizations and partners are natural. I mean, you probably saw the news that NATO recently launched their quantum first strategy. Uh, here in Amsterdam right now, we have the NATO Innovation Fund, starting with a billion dollars to, 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 to kick off, uh, actually without even participation of the U.S., I believe. I'm not entirely sure if that's, if that's correct, but I thought I heard that uh, the other day. But those are, you know... Uh, organizations on a, on, a, on a large scale global that makes sense to connect with. And, and I, for one, also feel that in it makes sense for us to connect, you know, on that level also to the U.S. Um, and, and look to the, you know, the national labs there and see how we can collaborate in a, in a, in a proper way. Right. So you just mentioned that you're halfway through the fund uh, a year after its launch. Are you already raising the second fund? I, I can't share anything about that, <laughs> unfortunately. It's, uh, there is, we, have, we have some really exciting plans, but um, it's, uh, I can't share anything yet. Well, I mean, we'll, we'll keep our eyes open then. We will, absolutely. Uh, before, we, before we wrap up, uh, I just wanted to zoom out once again, because we sort of dove straight into quite detailed topics. But perhaps you could mention when it comes to quantum computing and quantum technology uh, as a whole, what are the applications that you are most excited about going forward? We talked a bit about encryption and about um, uh, hacker-safe quantum internet, etc. But what are some of the other applications that you see? I think what I can say about that right now, I, I don't think that's the focus area for us now to, to, to look at mm-hmm. in, in that way from an application level. I think we're still very much in the build phase. Uh, we're trying to sort out some of the fundamental technology risks. So, you know, there's some practical things that we haven't really discussed sensing as, as a topic, but, you know, there's, which actually has a very relevant application right now in, in today's unfortunate, um, uh, uh, fortunate geopolitical and global field in terms of ultra-sensitive measurements and, and GPS, for example, uh, being one. Uh, I think there's a lot of those cases, and I think it's up to us to kind of like start working with large organizations to enable these cases. Like, for example, the Port of Rotterdam on critical infrastructure, or in banking and, and finance. And, um, but I would not say, I think, you know, it's, it's too early to tell. And I think that's also the exciting part of this space, right? I think, you know, in the next few years, we're going we're gonna to find out where that utility lies and, and, and which sectors is going to fall first. Right. Don, thank you so much for taking the time. Thanks a lot. And good luck with everything you're doing with uh, Quantum Delta and the other organizations. Thank you both. Indeed. Thank you and good luck. Once again, big thanks to Ton for finding the time to come on the show. And this is all we have time for in this episode of the TNW podcast. Thank you so much for listening. Linia, thanks uh, so much as usual for joining. Thank you for having me once again. Please help us spread the word. Tell a friend or colleague about the show and follow our updates on social media. Just search for The Next Web and you will find us pretty much everywhere. Music and sound engineering for this podcast is done by SoundPulse. Feel free to email me with any questions, suggestions and opinions. So we are always at podcast at thenextweb.com. Have a great week and we're going to talk to you next Wednesday. Bye-bye.